Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. We're continuing in our series on the church, and I want to talk about spiritual gifts. And so I've entitled our message, Gifts Then and Now. So this week, God's favorite sport was on full display in Indianapolis, Indiana. And I know what you're thinking. There is no hockey team in Indianapolis, Indiana. And that is true. You are correct. But my concern about hockey being God's favorite sport is I, I don't think there's going to be hockey in heaven. And it's not, I know, I know. It's not because of the hard checking. It's not because of the fighting. I think there will be MMA in heaven, mixed martial arts, because concussions will go away immediately. It's the weather. I cannot believe in a heaven of 20 below zero. So therefore, no hockey. But NFL football, NFL football fits heaven's weather perfectly. And this week, if you have NFL Network, every NFL GM was in Indianapolis watching what we call the NFL Combine. Exceptional college players are invited each year to show their skills before the April draft. Hundreds of young men are invited. Actually, this year, 319 were invited and they will demonstrate their skills before the draft so teams know sort of what they're capable of. They watch all the college tape. Teams then tell the league who they want to see at the combine. There's a committee that votes on it. And so at the combine, if you're really bored, turn to uh, the NFL Network. You will see quarterbacks throwing the football, receivers running routes, running backs will run and catch, linemen will do agility drills, Everyone will run a timed sprint, the 40-yard dash. Everyone will bench 225 pounds as many times as they can. People will discuss RAS, relative athletic score. And the RAS is how one athlete is relative to their peers as far as athleticism. It's a measure of gifting. And some GMs look at RAS scores, and that's like their number one issue when they're looking at players is how athletic are they because the NFL has the best of the best in these positions. It's a measure of gifting because a good team needs gifted players. God uses a similar analogy with the church. And God has made sure that the church has ample gifts in order to ensure its success. The church is sort of like a team where you need all kinds of people with all kinds of gifts to ultimately do what God wants us to do as a team. Now what's interesting about this subject is it's actually one that splits Christianity into a lot of different denominations. People do not agree about this, and we'll talk about why. But there's not a lot of unity on the issue of spiritual gifts. There are several different camps. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about you know, things that divide us at church. We said there are A issues. A issues would be the deity of Christ, the integrity of the scriptures, the authority and inspiration of the scriptures, you know, the, the trinity, things that the Bible clearly teaches that we sort of have to believe to be a Christian. 
the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross, those kinds of things. And then we said there are some D issues, and those D issues might be, you know, what kind of music we play at church, or how often we have communion in a service in a church, those kinds of things. They're D issues, they're not that important. Gifts is sort of in that B category. It kind of is important, and Christians do divide over it, but it's not an A issue. Today I wanna survey the topic a bit, want to help you understand the history of the New Testament on this topic, and then help you understand recent and ancient church history, what's going on throughout the church history, and give you a practical way to view your own gifting. So this is sort of a topical survey of spiritual gifts. We're going to begin where it all started. Spiritual gifts presumably originated at the birth of the church. I want you to take the Bible near you and turn to New Testament, about three quarters of the way through, Acts chapter two, page 92. Acts chapter two, page 92. And this is where most theologians would say the birth of the church actually took place. Jesus has predicted it, he'd said a few things in the gospels about it, but this is where we really see the Holy Spirit come upon the early church in power, demonstrating his presence with some miraculous gifts. This is by almost all measures universally viewed as the birth of the church. Acts chapter two, beginning in verse one. We're not gonna read the whole uh, passage. We're gonna read up until Peter uh, gives a sermon and he is long-winded, so we will not read that sermon. Acts chapter two, beginning in verse one. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. We're talking about the early believers. Pentecost means 50, Penta is five, so it's 50 days after Passover another really important Jewish holiday. So Pentecost is 50 days later. I believe it celebrates the Feast of Weeks on the Jewish calendar. So when the day of Pentecost had come, 50 days after Passover, when Jesus was crucified, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, the early church knew the disciples were predominantly from Galilee, and they're saying, why do these guys know my other languages? These guys are all from Galilee. How is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya and Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they're full of wine. Peter, taking his stand with the 11, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea, And all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. Then he goes on to give a prophecy from Joel 
from the Old Testament saying this is part of its fulfillment. And he talks about Jesus, who they had rejected and crucified. He gives an invitation. 3,000 people came to faith that day. That was the beginning of the church. Jesus had predicted, not long before this, just weeks before this, a change to the nature of God's kingdom on earth. And he had predicted that it would change or it would transition from a nation, uh, sort of the kingdom of God being Israel-centric, a nation that God would elevate among other nations so they would know the true God. It would change from being a nation that God blessed to being people called out from many nations, which would be the church of Jesus Christ. People from every nation who profess that Jesus is Son of God, Savior, and Lord. And the resurrection and the miracle around the resurrection was their unifying theme as the early church began to understand its implications. It meant that Jesus was God. It meant that what he did on the cross paid the penalty for sins and his resurrection showed that he was victorious over that. Now we would place faith in Jesus and all the people who did that would be this new expression of God's kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ. Before he left the earth, Jesus actually predicted this day. He predicted this, the Holy Spirit's activity. The resurrection had created a buzz that kept people in and around Jerusalem. After the resurrection took place, not everyone went home, and the same thing happens here. Another Jewish feast is upon them, Pentecost, 50 days after Passover, and this would have drawn probably hundreds of thousands of people in and around Jerusalem because they were required to go on these sort of religious vacations. So you've got hundreds of thousands of people in and around Jerusalem. It's 50 days after Jesus' death and resurrection. Jews from all across the Roman Empire came to these feast weeks because they were required to legally. So you have people from at least, I believe, 15, 16 different regions mentioned here. So these pilgrims and the apostles are probably in part of the temple courts. I know the passage says they were sitting together in the house. Uh, in Jewish culture, sometimes the temple was called the house. It seems there were too many people here to be in a regular house, so I'm assuming it's the temple. Many scholars believe that. And as they're together in the temple, persecution hasn't really happened yet much with Christianity. They're together in the temple, a miraculous event then marks the beginning of the church. There's a sound of rushing wind. Now the word spirit actually is pneuma, it means wind in Greek. There's a sound of a rushing wind and the appearance of fire resting on some of these apostles or other early believers. And then there is an ability that is sort of hoisted on them. These early Christians had the ability to speak in other languages which represented all of these pilgrims from across the Roman Empire who were Jewish. So the Jews had been scattered. Uh, they'd been scattered throughout the Roman Empire. They were scattered before that among the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire. They've not all relocated in Israel. They're scattered throughout the world, the known world at that time. A lot of them don't speak Hebrew anymore or Aramaic. They speak these foreign languages. 16 regions are mentioned. I believe Judea is mentioned. So 15 foreign regions are mentioned. For centuries, they would try to navigate to Jerusalem during these special feast weeks. And they're hearing the apostles speak 
in their foreign languages. And they make note of it. They're saying, why aren't we hearing Galilean? It doesn't make sense. We're hearing this in our own languages. 16, probably, different languages. Then Peter got up to speak. Presumably, his words were relayed by those speaking in these foreign languages or speaking in tongues, as it was called. 3,000 people were converted that day because they heard the gospel and they also saw and experienced this miracle of the Holy Spirit, which was the birth of the church. Now, this gift of tongues is mentioned here for the first time. No other gifts are mentioned. No other spiritual gifts are mentioned in this passage. But after this, you see other Bible passages referring to how the church has been gifted. There's no other event, there's no other moment that is talked about in the scriptures where these other gifts are bestowed. So it would seem that this Pentecost moment is the time where gifts were broadly distributed to the early church. And that as people came to faith, they had spiritual gifts. So spiritual gifts presumably originated at the birth of the church here in Acts chapter two. Second, spiritual gifts accompanied a new and closer relationship with the Holy Spirit. Now there are a lot of things going on that are new in our relationship with God in the New Testament compared to the Old. And I'm gonna just tell you a few of them. There are many new sort of more intimate concepts that take place with God in the New Testament versus the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus actually predicted this. He said the Holy Spirit won't even just be with us, he will be in us. The Apostle Paul talks about Christ in us, that kind of concept. So Jesus had predicted this, what we call indwelling of the Holy Spirit, where in the Old Testament, evidently this either didn't happen or it didn't happen at this level of intensity. When a person came to faith in God, in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit resides within us in some mystical way. I don't know that I could explain it better than that, but he is in us in some mystical way, guiding us, influencing us, etc. So Jesus predicted indwelling, that's new. Don't talk about that in the Old Testament. Paul speaks of the sealing of the Holy Spirit, which seems to be connected to the fact that once we're Christians, you can't lose that. So I'm a person who believes in eternal security. If you're a person of faith, it doesn't come and go because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Paul speaks of spirit baptism, where, which connects us all, of us, all of us to Christ's work on the cross and to each other in the body of Christ. That's a new thing. Multiple writers speak to the Holy Spirit gifting believers. That's a new concept. Something has changed. We have this more intimate relationship with God than people experienced in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you look at the activity of the Holy Spirit, you'll see that you know, the Holy Spirit would come upon people in certain situations. And you can trace this throughout the Old Testament. You can see it in the leaders of Israel. You can see it in the judges. What will say, the Spirit of God came upon them, and then they'll do something really fantastic. That's a new thing to be indwelt with, in the, with the Holy Spirit in this way. And Spirit-empowered gifting is part of this new and closer relationship. Third, gifts vary in their nature and classification. This is where the discussion 
begins to deviate from any kind of uniform belief and any kind of unity in Christianity. Some people believe that spiritual gifts are entirely supernatural. That when you come to a point of faith, that God just gives you spiritual gifts at that point, and they might have nothing to do with who you were before your point of faith. So you kind of have something that you just couldn't do before, and it happens at that time. Some people believe that gifts are mostly our natural abilities that we would have whether we're Christians or non-Christians, and they are heightened or intensified by God's Spirit. Some believe it's a combination of both, and I would kind of be in that camp. Let me illustrate. 100 years ago, actually 101 years ago to be specific, in 1922, a Minnesota man named Ralph Samuelson went to a local lumberyard. Anyone know what he invented? I'll be really impressed if anyone knows this. Water skiing. Most people would have said that Samuelson found two ordinary eight-foot-long pine boards, but he had a more creative idea. He saw two water skis. Here's the backstory on his invention of water skiing. Samuelson lived in Minnesota and wondered if you could ski on water the way you could on snow. I would suggest it's a lot safer because there aren't trees in lakes. And I know some of you are thinking, why would trees be a problem with snow skiing? You've never seen me ski. But at 18, he made his own skis and he had his brother pull him behind a boat. He unsuccessfully tried snow skis and barrel stays before realizing he needed something that covered more surface area on the water. And that's when Samuelson spotted two eight-foot-long, nine-inch-wide pine boards. So he used his mother's wash boiler. He softened one end of each board, and then he clamped the tips with vices so he could, while they were wet, curve them upwards and bend them. He put leather straps to hold his feet in place, and he acquired 100 feet of window sash cord to use as a tow rope. Finally, he hired a blacksmith to make a small iron ring to serve as the handle, which he would hang on to. He tried several different approaches. In most of his attempts, he started with his skis level with or below the water line, but by the time his brother got the boat going, he was sinking. Finally, he tried raising the tips of his skis out of the water while he leaned back, and it worked. As his brother steered the boat, Samuelson cruised along behind him. And to this day, this is still the position that water skiers assume. Samuelson began performing tricks on his skis, and crowds as large as 1,000 came out to watch him. Now, I know 1,000 people watching you do anything is not that impressive anymore today, but back then, 1,000 people watching somebody sort of walk on water was impressive. The supernatural camp, the supernatural only camp on spiritual gifts would say, that if, if water skiing is a spiritual gift, when Ralph came to faith in Christ, he could just ski right out of the gate. He would have had a vision for skiing. I don't mean that in a miraculous sense. He would have had a, in his mind a, an ability of what skiing was like. He would have been able to go down to the local docks and uh, hook up some skis and a rope to a, a big boat, have somebody drive the boat, and first time out, he would have been able to ski because if it's just a spiritual gift and the Holy Spirit is guiding it, you should be able to ski right out of the gate at salvation. That would be more like the supernatural only camp on spiritual gifts. The natural ability camp would say, 
that Ralph Samuelson probably was going to ski no matter what. He was going to figure this out. He, you know, was creative. He saw water. He thought of snow skiing. He had an idea. He, he made some skis. And the Holy Spirit sort of guided that process. But God made him a much better skier than he otherwise would have been because he has faith in Jesus Christ and he has this gift of water skiing. So which one is true? I think both are true. And I think it depends on the passage and what's listed there. And so I want to show you how in each one of these New Testament passages, they don't really overlap much. There are different gifts listed, and and they almost are different classifications of gifts. And I would be somebody who believes, and I'm not alone on this, they probably don't exhaust the full list of gifts that God gives to the church at all. It's probably much broader than this. Here's a list in Romans chapter 12, verses six through eight. However, forgive the glare, sorry. However, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to use them properly. If prophecy in proportion to one's faith, if service in the act of serving, or the one who teaches in the act of teaching, or the one who exhorts in the work of exhortation, the one who gives with generosity, the one who's in leadership with diligence, the one who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Now what do you notice about both of those, or all of those gifts? Other than prophecy, I would say there's not really a supernatural nature to those gifts. They're more functions in the church. And some of those people could function doing those things outside of the church and even outside of faith as well. These are functions in the church. They don't seem that supernatural. Now look at this list in 1 Corinthians 12, 7 to 10, because these are going to jump off the chart with supernatural miraculous. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, to another word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. Now I think we all struggle to know what those things actually mean in the 21st century, but I'll give you an example. My mother, when I was a child, would be woken up in the middle of the night for no reason with like a person's name heavy on on her heart to pray for them, and she would. Then she would later find out something serious was going on in that person's life. To me, that's sort of a word of knowledge or something like that. It's very hard to know 2,000 years later what some of these things mean, but, but something was going on with my mom that was, I would say, unusual and spirit-inspired. I hope I'm right about that, mom. All right. Word of knowledge according to the same spirit. To another, faith by the same spirit. That's a spiritual issue. To another, gifts of healing by the one spirit. Those were miracles. To another, the effecting of miracles. Miracles besides healing. To another, prophecy. To another, the distinguishing of spirits or kind of the gift of discernment. To another, various kinds of tongues. This miraculous ability to speak in other languages. And to another, the interpretation of tongues. You notice how this list is very different than the first list. The first list was sort of functions that take place in the church and that could take place in a, in a public school for that matter, other than prophecy. It's things that people do. This list has sort of the miraculous written all over it. Now we've got another list. First Peter 4, 10 and 11. Not as much here. 
Each, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the multifaceted grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking actual words of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. So here you have just a couple of gifts mentioned, sound more like, again, functions in the church. Ephesians 4, 11, and 12. Here's an interesting one. And he gave, God gave some apostles, some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry. Here, it's persons that are given as gifts, as God's gifts to the church based on the office and the gifting that they have. So all of these passages basically are very different, give us a different angle on gifts. And here's why this matters a little bit the nature of some of these gifts may relate to their permanence or not. If all gifts are just natural abilities, we would say, well, we have natural abilities, and then when we come to faith, the Holy Spirit of God uses those. We still have those. I I would say that about myself. I don't think I have any supernatural gifts. I think I have natural abilities that God uses that I would be able to use if I weren't a Christian. But I believe they're heightened by the Spirit of God. That's what I'd say about me. I'd say that about most of us. That's kind of the nature of our spiritual gifts, most likely. These lists are very different. They really don't even overlap much. And they're likely, again, not exhaustive at all. So how do these gifts translate from the early church to today? Thank you for asking that question. That issue separates Christians into many different denominations and camps, and it's created a lot of theological confusion. So I'm going to walk through this and try to explain what has happened in the church and why, and why people differ on these issues. Gifts today, especially the more miraculous gifts, are disputed based on theology, history, and scripture itself. So I'm going to kind of give you an idea of why there are Pentecostal churches, why there are charismatic churches, and why there are sort of the rest of evangelicalism that isn't Pentecostal or charismatic. So there's you know, two or three different camps. And actually, I shouldn't just say evangelicalism, because there's been movements of some of these gifts in Catholicism, in mainline Protestantism as well. So we're not all going to agree here, okay? We just get that out of the way. We're not all going to agree here, and don't shoot the messenger. If this was perfectly clear... Whole denominations would not exist today based on disagreement about these issues, especially speaking in tongues, healing, interpretation of tongues, etc. So a couple of thoughts about the theology surrounding this. So in Acts, in the book of Acts, what we read earlier is the first time that the Holy Spirit empowered the ability of believers to speak in tongues. And in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit empowered that and these believers could speak in tongues, it's very clear when you read the text that they were speaking to other people in a known language. It's very clear that that's the case. And that's not necessarily what is believed today uh, in some groups, and I'll explain that in a moment. But the first use of the gift of tongues was clearly, I'm able to speak in the Median language, the Phrygian language, uh, Cretan language, or something like that, because the Holy Spirit of God gave me the ability to do it, and those people heard me speak in their language. It was empowering, 
It was supernatural. It was a miracle on display for possibly, you know, 10 or 20,000 people. 3,000 people became believers that day. Now, if you trace the book of Acts, it seemed this same phenomena seems to be repeated wherever the gospel goes to a new group of people. Like as the gospel goes into Samaria, as the gospel goes uh, towards Rome, as the gospel goes into Gentile territories, you'll see wherever the gospel is given and people receive it, this phenomena is repeated, which I believe was the Holy Spirit's way of saying the body of Christ is not just Jewish, it's everybody who calls on the name of Jesus. Now here's where this gets interesting within under the Christian umbrella. Pentecostals, uh, old Pentecostals, and um, our song leader today said he grew up in a Pentecostal movement. He said, if I say something he doesn't like, he's going to give the thumbs down and cross his arms stubbornly. He hasn't done it yet. Okay. So maybe we should just have him up here so you can see his reactions. All right. Old Pentecostals, real true Pentecostals, and I would say the Assemblies of God started this way. I'm not sure if they would say this today. I've had Assemblies of God friends, pastor friends. Uh, so, you know, we're all in the same camp, but we don't necessarily agree on this issue. But old Pentecostals would say that these people became believers and then they were able to speak in tongues and they would say that that's normative for all believers and it's actually a sign of salvation, that it's necessary to speak in tongues as a way to show that the Spirit of God resides in you or that you've been baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's what old Pentecostals would say that is sort of necessary and everyone needs to do it, all right? New Pentecostals or Neo-Pentecostals or what we would call charismatic churches would not necessarily say that. They've moderated that view a bit. They would say that you don't have to speak in tongues to indicate that you're a Christian, but that everybody should seek to speak in tongues even though it's not necessary, and that it's not necessarily known languages anymore, that it's a prayer language as well. So it doesn't have to be a known language like Acts chapter 2 or the other places in Acts, but it's a prayer language. And they get that from the Apostle Paul saying, though I speak in the tongues of men and of angels. You know. So they would say there's some sort of heavenly, uh, sort of ecstatic utterance that we can participate in that's very freeing in our spirits and it's spiritual and it's miraculous, but it doesn't mean you're speaking in a known, in a known language. Here's the deal with history. And here's a little bit more where I'm coming from. I know Brennan's coming from this place as well. He said that a couple of weeks ago. I'm gonna explain what he meant because I know he didn't get into it very far. Much of church history has little to no record of these gifts being used. All right, so... The book of Acts is taking place, you know, in AD 30 to, you know, maybe a decade or two after that. It's, it's the early church. We're 2,000 years from then. There's very little record of this from about AD 100 all the way up until the 20th century when the Pentecostal movement broke out. I was saying, Paul, are you saying none of this was going on for almost 2,000 years? No. I'm not saying none of it was. I'm saying church historians find very little. There are some religious groups that practiced it. It was never mainstream. Also, and here's an interesting thing, similar phenomena do occur in other religions. 
So speaking in tongues is not just a Christian thing, what goes on today in charismatic churches. It's not just Christian. There are other groups that have spoken in tongues throughout church history, and there are other groups even in Bible times, they weren't necessarily, they weren't Christian groups that have spoken in tongues. And so there's a psychological phenomenon that can be produced and is produced in other religions throughout history that is like speaking in tongues, only it's not speaking in tongues. Linguists in modernity here have sort of taken this and said, okay, we're going to look at what goes on in these situations and we're going to study it and see if it really has sort of linguistic elements. So linguists have studied sort of the modern charismatic movement and what they would say is it lacks the characteristics of known languages. And that's where charismatics would say it's not known languages, it's a heavenly language. One of my greater concerns about this would be that nowhere in Scripture are we told that we can be taught to speak in tongues, which is a common theme in a lot of charismatic circles where you sort of teach somebody to speak in tongues. All right, so none of that really proves much of anything. It just gives you kind of throughout history this was not the norm. Now, there are a couple of Scripture passages that people who believe some of this stuff has ceased will use. So there's two camps on this, okay? And I'm going to give you the two names of those camps. One is called cessationists. Cessationists believe that tongues ceased after the era of the apostles. And then there's the other camp that we'd be called continualists, where you've got Pentecostals and Charismatics and others who would say that, no, it continues to this day. Now, a cessationist would say it's probably ceased because of this is one of the passages. Now, I don't necessarily believe what cessationists believe about this passage, but I want to show it to you anyway. 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 10. This is in the love chapter, which, as Brennan said a couple of weeks ago, rightfully, he said, this is not meant to be your wedding chapter. This is a chapter in a discussion about spiritual gifts, actually, and about how the church should be with each other on the issue of spiritual gifts. Love never fails, but if there are... Whoa. I didn't do that. I wish I did, especially talking about miracles. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. And he's talking about these miraculous gifts, and he's saying they're going to be over at some point. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Now, cessationists, of which I am one, would say, no, I don't agree with this interpretation, but what they would say is, this is talking about when the scriptures are written, when that which is perfect comes. That's the completion of the canon of scripture. Some of these extra spiritual gifts that help guide the church won't be necessary because the Bible will be our guide. That's what a lot of cessationists say. I'm not sure that's really what that passage is teaching. It might have more to do with when we're face-to-face with Jesus. But cessationists do use this to say, even in the Bible, there's some prediction that things may not last forever in this area. Here's another verse in Hebrews. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at first spoken through the Lord... It was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So when Hebrews was written, it's almost as if the writer of Hebrews, who could be Paul, could be, um, oh, I forget, there's a gal that some people believe might have written it. 
Priscilla? I think it's another one as well. Phoebe, thank you. I think it might be Phoebe. So we're not sure who wrote Hebrews. Could be Paul, could be Phoebe, evidently Priscilla as well. Um, but we're not sure. But that writer evidently is looking back on this era, and it almost seems to be looking back on the era as though it's over. Like this is what God did right after the resurrection. Jesus said this was going to happen. It's confirmed by those who heard the apostles. They had all these kinds of abilities to perform miracles. It seems to be looking back on an era of miracles. James 5 is another interesting passage. In James 5, there's a practice of the elders of the early church anointing people with oil for healing. And when we have communion later, a couple elders will be down here, there's a couple vials of oil. We practice this because it seems that the church in the elder function has now adopted this practice. What's interesting in James 5, I find that curious, why don't they just say, find the person in the church with the healing gift? They don't say that. So even when James was written, it might have already started to transition to a role in the church that the elders occupy. Acts is a historically transitionary book. Much of scripture, and this is where this gets sort of hermeneutically and philosophically interesting, much of scripture is not in everyone's daily experience. Now, it did appear normative, so I would agree that Charismatics and Pentecostals have a point. This was normative in the New Testament, so it should be normative today. I get why they say that. It makes a lot of sense. But history doesn't seem to bear out that it was. So, where does that leave us? Well, not in a perfect uh, place of conclusion. Because I would say I'm kind of a historic cessationist. I think history would show us that. But with God able to do whatever God wants to do, So this is the point I want to leave us with. God is still in the business of both miracles and gifting his church. One of the problems with cessationists, and I went to a seminary that would have been cessationist, and more so than I am today, because one of the problems with cessationists is this. They throw out the baby with the bathwater, and that's common. By the way, where did that phrase come from? Think about that. It it had, you know, who actually did that the first time? It had to be the husband, right? Honey, will you wash the baby? Yeah, yeah. He's got the game on. Honey, don't throw out the baby with... All right, so anyway. But cessationists throw out the baby with the bathwater. And I'm kind of a cessationist. But miracles were, we would all agree, you look at the scriptures, in the era of Jesus, miracles were extremely common because... The Son of God came into the world. He is a miraculous figure, and he wanted to demonstrate his qualifications as the Son of God. So his life was filled with miracles. One of the gospel writers said, if you wrote down everything Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain the books. Now, he's obviously using hyperbole, but he makes a point. We don't have it all. Jesus did a lot more than what we have. Same thing in the early church. There were these gifts of miracles which authenticated the reality and the truth of the gospel of Jesus. And and you could say, well, why doesn't it happen today in the same way? I think it does, just less commonly. So I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater and say the era of miracles is over. God is now just like a left-brain Westerner. He doesn't really see any miracles happening. A former worship pastor uh, that I worked with for many, many years had spots on his spinal cord and uh, indication of uh, MS, I believe. And um, could hardly walk to the mailbox. 
Couldn't go to work anymore. Came to the elders, we anointed him, we prayed for him. And it was reversed. Now I know that that can be reversed naturally. It can happen, but it seemed to happen coincident with him being anointed and prayed for. And he's been symptom-free, I believe, till now. I believe God performed a miracle. I was talking to John Fenyuk, who I had on stage here in our missions conference. Remember John from Wycliffe? All right, so John from Wycliffe was in my office a couple weeks ago, and we're planning a mission trip to Thailand, and, and John told me about a guy who went on a Wycliffe missions trip, and I think it was South America, I could be wrong, uh, but went to, I think, South America, and I think he was a regular guy, maybe a pastor. I know that you don't think pastors are regular guys, but he's a regular guy and a pastor, I think. And he was in this remote tribal area, and he began to speak in tongues. And it wasn't like charismatic tongues, heavenly language. He was speaking in the known language of that people group, which is just like Acts chapter 2. And this was not that long ago. Now, when I hear those stories, my little cessationist spirit doesn't say, no, 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 that can't be. What I say is, wow, God can do whatever he wants to do whenever. I don't think it's happened, you know, all through church history consistently, like in Acts, but we can't, like, put God to bed and say, yeah, you can't act that way. We're going to put you in a box until we get to heaven. God is God. God can do whatever he wants. And our theology should not limit him unless he's clearly limited himself. I was a part of the Christian Missionary Alliance denomination for 27 years, plus or minus, and read one of their books about their history. And when Christian Missionary Alliance missionaries went to new regions throughout history, many times when they went in those new areas, you would see things like this. Healings would accompany the gospel many times. Healings like you see in the New Testament. So there are situations where it's obvious God still acts in the same way that we see him act in the New Testament. And also, since even the New Testament never claims to have an exhaustive list, I just don't want to limit God. God gifts in many ways. He's still in the business of miracles, and he's still in the business of gifting his church. But we saw, we saw, those, uh, we saw those lists earlier that I showed. And we all kind of agreed, because you were kind of nodding a little bit. A few of you agreed that the lists are very different. That the characteristics of the gifts, even in the different lists, were, were somewhat different. Some were very miraculous, some were very practical, very function-oriented. And so I love this way of explaining it. And I believe Saddleback Church and Rick Warren came up with this. And it's the best way I know of to kind of explain how people should view gifting in their own lives. And I, you know, I've seen the spiritual gifts inventories that churches pass around and everyone fills out a form and they try to figure out what their spiritual gift is and they try to get it matched to some situation in the church. And I think it's really overly complicated. I really like this simple way of looking at this. And he has an acrostic. The acrostic is shape. Like what is your shape? You can see the letters there. S for spiritual gifts. Is there a clear match with something in Scripture that's mentioned as a spiritual gift? You know, do you know that? And then H is for heart. What do I really care about? Because a lot of times your gifting or how God will use you is like, hey, I really have a heart for this. I have a heart for people who don't have enough food. Or I have a heart for people who don't have a place to stay at night. I have a heart for girls that are sold into 
sex trafficking. I have a heart for, and you can, you know, God will use those things because you'll tend to spend your time there and you want your church spending resources there because that's where your heart is. Spiritual gifts, heart, ability. What am I good at? What has God wired you to do? There's a very good chance that whatever you do vocationally, you probably can help in the kingdom with in some cases, or it's just a way you relate to to how God can use you. What's your personality? How are you wired? That will likely have to do with your gifting and how God will use you. What are your experiences? What have you been through? What are your bad experiences, actually? Many of the greatest nonprofits in North America that aren't Christian come out of pain. Somebody lost a child to drunk driving. Well, mothers against drunk driving. You know, pain creates an opportunity for God to use us. And as a believer in Jesus, God definitely wants to use the kinds of things in our lives that we might wish had never happened. Spiritual gifts, heart, ability, personality, experience. That's the best way I know to sort of look in our hearts and say, okay, how can God use me? I think it's just a great acrostic. All right, then gift, then and now apps. You just wrap up real quickly here. Three things. First, don't let the gift gap be an obedience gap. All right, important point here. You know, if I were preaching on you need to reach out to your neighbor who doesn't know Jesus, and let's say you're, you sort of deflect that and in your heart you say, I don't have the gift of evangelism, pastor. What would I say? That doesn't matter. Because we're all commanded to reach our neighbor with the gospel. So the gift gap isn't an excuse for an obedience gap. And a lot of gifts in the New Testament that are given to the few, we might say, are actually commands for all of us. It just means certain people are going to be really good at certain things because of how God has made them and how the Spirit of God will use them. But all kinds of things that we're all supposed to do our spiritual gifts like evangelism, mercy, faith, helps, serving, teaching. There's all kinds of gifts that are named that we're all sort of commanded to do in some capacity anyway. So don't let the gift gap be an obedience gap. Second, don't forget the purpose of gifts. It's about building God's church, God's team. And that was a lot of what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. The, the church was not doing well with, within itself. Some gifts were elevated. People were sort of making themselves very self-centered with them. But gifting is about the team. Or Paul would say, it's about the body. We're gifted so that we can be stronger together, and we need all of those gifts working together. Little illustration from a spider web. Nothing will die in the spider web. A single strand of spider silk is thinner than a human hair, but five times stronger than steel of the same width. A spider silk rope, just two inches thick, so if you were to take spider web two inches thick, could reportedly stop a 747, a Boeing 747. And by stop it, I'm assuming they mean in flight, I didn't write this. You know, maybe it's just one of those things, you know, they say, On its own, it could do little, but bound together with other strands in a rope, it has awesome strength. That's the way our spiritual gifts are. Together, if we're all committed and involved in contributing how God has wired us and made us and gifted us, the church is powerful. Third, and I always like to ask this when people don't have an idea, if you were God, what would you do with you 
in this world and in this church? How do you imagine that God could use you? You know, every year, around Christmas time in particular, but birthdays and other special events qualify, in North America, the U.S., Canada, there are billions and billions and billions, probably tens of billions of dollars worth of gift cards that are bought. And vendors love that. Do you know why? They just love it. Because people collect them, don't always use them, lose them. There's just, they make billions of dollars. So when, when gift cards are being bought, they are just, they're just ecstatic. Because every year, billions of dollars worth of gift cards expire. You know, Satan kind of loves unused gifts in Christians. Think about that. If I'm the enemy, and I, I can play Satan, if I'm the enemy, that was supposed to be funny. Some of you thought, yeah, he actually can. He doesn't even have to try hard. Gets there really quick. All right, if I were Satan, what would I love? I would love churches full of people with potential. Satan loves that word, potential that's never really spent or engaged, that just sits and says, I'll get involved someday. Not a good time for me. I just want to be fed, having some me time. You know, that's what Jesus always said, having some me time. Every church, every Christian is in the business of changing the world. We're all in that business. We need the whole team to do that. I'm going to pray, and as we uh, enter a time of communion, as I pray, the worship team's going to come up here, and uh, then we'll go through a time of uh, communion. We'll have the, uh, the ushers come up as well who are going to be serving communion. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you have shaped every life in this room. Everyone here is gifted, whether it's a spiritual gift or what you've laid on our heart, our natural abilities, our personalities, our experiences, even our painful experiences, you want to use us. You want to use us as a team, as your body, to make a difference to each other and to the world around us. Help us to do that. Help us to be the kind of team that you can use with each other and in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.